Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome back to HBO's official Band of Brothers podcast. This is Roger Bennett. I say flash, you say thunder. Episode 9, Why We Fight. An instalment that contains not a single shot of gunfire, yet is viewed by many to be the single most powerful episode of the entire series. Tom Hanks called Why We Fight a tone poem and it consists of two interlocking halves, storylines that at first seem jarringly different, only to connect them in the final scenes with an awesome, gut-wrenching tremor. The war is winding down. Easy Company have entered Germany. We discover them first at rest, overlooking a broken city, Tarlem, in ruins, piles of rubble being slowly picked over by weary, aged German civilians. A relative respite for a unit that has endured the horrors of Normandy, Market Garden and the Battle of the Bulge. Do you understand that this is the best part of fucking war I've seen? I got hot chow, hot showers, warm bed. Germany is almost as good as being home. I even got to wipe my ass real toilet paper today. All of this sudden downtime has given Easy Company time to think. Too much time to think, perhaps, and ponder why is it that they've done what they've done? Given of themselves, sacrificed, lost their friends in the process, and they're asking themselves, in the delicate words of Private First Class Webster, to a column of surrendered German soldiers. Dragging our asses halfway around the world. Interrupting our lives for what? You ignorant, servile scum! What the fuck are we doing here? This episode delivers a sobering answer then, as Easy Company rolls into Landsberg, which sets up a devastating climax. The final 20 minutes are essentially a mini-movie. As on patrol, the men walk through a forest on the edge of town, and in silence, they see smoke. Can you join us? Sir, uh, we found something. Uh, we are on a patrol, and uh, we came across this. What, 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 what? Frank, Frank, what is it? I don't know, sir. I don't know. Winters and Nixon drive out to meet the men and encounter what we now know as Kalfering 4, 
a labour camp, part of the Dachau complex, filled with the surviving, emaciated and still imprisoned Jews, Poles and Gypsies behind its locked gates. In scenes shot with handheld cameras which reinforce the sense of shock and reality, we see what the men see. Broken bodies, barely holding on to a flicker of life and humanity. Corpse-like characters who swarm a bewildered and for a moment defeated Winters. Why We Fight remains one of the most harrowing pieces of television I've ever encountered. An intensely powerful experience for viewers, no matter whether it's their first time or their 50th time watching this penultimate episode of Band of Brothers. An episode that concludes in the way it began, with the men once again amidst the rubble of that broken German town. Beethoven is playing, and Nixon delivers the most seismic news. Hitler's dead. Holy shit. Shot himself in Berlin. Is the war over, sir? No. We have orders to back this guy, and we're going to move out one hour. Why? The man's not home. Should have killed himself three years ago. Saved us a lot of trouble. Yeah, he should have. But he didn't. My guest today is the man who played Joseph Liebgott, a liberator who begins the episode dreaming of settling down, or in his words, finding a nice, well-endowed Jewish girl and a house with lots of bedrooms for all the little Liebgotts he's planning on making. And by the end, is emotionally reeling as we experience the true horrors behind the German war machine through his words through his eyes. So it's a joy to welcome the man who played technician fifth grade Joseph D. Liebgott Jr. of Easy Company. It's Mr. Ross McCall. I mean, what an introduction. We can't even better that. You are worthy of one. You played one of the most singular roles in one of the most singular moments in the most singular television series, which we will talk about and the real Joseph Liebgott in a moment. But he was born in Detroit, Michigan. You were born in the shipbuilding town of Port Glasgow, Scotland. Very similar to Detroit, Michigan. <laughs> very, very similar in many ways. In many ways, it is. You started acting professionally when you were 11. And one of your first roles, the young Freddie Mercury in Queen's Video for the Miracle. Yeah, how about that? Huh? I think I was the first person to play Mr. Mercury. I've got to say, it's a magnificent performance. 11-year-old you, leather pants, biker cap, and the signature bottomless mic. You proceeded to carve out a singular role in English TV and movies and theatre. Your role yeah. was really just playing Americans. My whole life I've been playing our American cousins, yeah. Probably in like the last two decades, I think I've only played maybe two Brits. I find it really hard because it's just a completely different, such as actually thing to say, it's two completely different characters. When I play an American, I have a little bit of a easier swagger. And when I play a Brit, it sounds fake to me. And then fans write in and say, love Ross McCall, dodgy British accent. <laughs> I can't win. So I have to stick with the American. <laughs> but the accent came from young Ross McCall 
watching De Niro, watching Taxi Driver, Mean Street, you always dreamt of Hollywood. Anyone who knows where I was born, it's a place called Greenock. I was brought up in a place called Port Glasgow. It's a very working class area, still is to this day. I love it dearly. It comes with a bit of grip. The crowd you ran around with were always a little bit boisterous, shall we say. We were always getting in increments of trouble. And the one thing that sort of steered me away from all that nonsense was my love for film. So I would sneak off to the local cinema. There's a bookies in a cinema next door to each other. And there was like a big broken down rubble wall next to it. And I climbed up to the top of a wall, shimmied up a pipe. It was all very adventurous. Got on top of the cinema because I loved the cinema. And I was like, I want to see the view of the cinema. And when I was up there, there was a shed. I opened the door and I would lay down on the planks of wood that were in there. And there were the hot bulbs in the floor, which were the twinkly little lights in the ceiling. And so I would pull them out and I would lay down and I'd watch films for hours. And I ended up watching Goodfellas and I was just mesmerized. I look at it now as an adult and as a writer and I can see that that was my first internship in writing. It was the first time I actually listened to something and went, holy, wow, this is an incredible piece of script. I left that cinema and I felt 10 foot tall. You are a gentleman that just wills things to happen. It is so unbelievably inspiring, your story. Dream big dreams, listeners. How did it happen? The Band of Brothers story. Take us back. I guess you would call it either just an egomaniac or someone who is vastly confident or just highly deluded. But I, for whatever reason, was like, if there's an American role in the UK of my age group, I've got the best American accent and I wasn't a big head, but I certainly had a vibe of, of course I'm in this. This is an American show. It's with Spielberg. My agent was either the smartest woman in the world or she was a tough gambler because I'd heard about it early doors and I nudged her and said, hey, what's going on? Everybody's talking about this show. And she goes, I'm all over it, but I don't want to put you in the pool yet. Why? Because everybody's in the pool. She goes, I want to wait until it whittles down when they start getting rid of the surrounders and then you know, going for the kill. And I was like, well, don't miss out. That's a big gamble. And she was like, trust me. And I did. Other gents getting their seventh, eighth callback. Belatedly, you're making the late entrance into the party. Very dramatic. It was at the Anthonyum Hotel in Piccadilly in London. To go and meet Tom Hanks. Look, I was a massive Forrest Gump fan. I was a massive Saving Private Ryan fan, big fan. You know, I mean, Tom is the quintessential movie star of our generation, you know. So I was elated. Then the nerves kicked in and then it's like, all right, how do I be different? Just because you're meeting him doesn't mean you're getting this gig. And so I remember just researching. I went to the local library, <laughs> days of dial-up. I wrote down the paratrooper song. I looked at what they were wearing. I looked at a cut of hair. I looked at where they were from. And I just made note upon note upon note upon note. And I just had a file full of notes. And I knew that it would never serve me in any way except just give me knowledge. And so I went in at a Peacoat Inn that was the only army type that I didn't want to go and dress as a soldier. I'm not that guy. And I just had this bag of notes. And he's like, what's that? I'm like, it's all my notes, Mr. Hanks. He was on a break from Castaway. So he had the beard and the bandana and we read and he could not have been kinder and sweeter and nicer. Did you drop your blood upon the risers? <laughs> no, but I knew it. He was just a rookie trooper and he surely shook with fright. You would have been great in that room. You oh, would have been great in that room. There's not a single bull person in Van der Brothers. He wouldn't have looked at me. Oh, there is. There is. I'm not going to call him out on air, but there is. Look closely. <laughs> Look closely. There's a couple. 
Number <laughs> 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 mind is that is genuinely processing. But his last words to you, Tom Hanks, in that audition work. Great job, kid. So I left that one. Nice job, kid. And then I get a phone call saying the executive producer, Tony Toe. So you had Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks, and Tony Toe. And Tony was the boots on the ground producer. Banner Brothers was really Tom's baby. It was his development. Stephen was there as entertainment muscle, creativity. But it was really, Tom was there a lot. Tony was there every day. Tony was the one that was really keeping it ticking along. And so I had to go back and meet him in some place in Soho. And this point, they'd given me a, a speech to learn. So it was a monologue. And so I went in, I did the scene. And at the end, he said, Ross. And I said, yeah. He said, where are you from? I looked over my shoulder and I went, Yonkers. And I winked and I walked out. Yeah, I got the job. That was it. So we already know when it comes to English American accents, you, Ross, were essentially the LeBron of your generation. You were the GOAT. I would like to think that for sure in little Ross's head at that point. You need an American in the UK. Ross, LeBron is your guy. So did you ever ask yourself, why is Band of Brothers signing up so many British actors to play American roles? Why don't they just hire, you know, American actors to play American roles? How do you understand that? A lot of it comes down to cost. A lot of it comes down to, okay, if we're going to shoot it in the UK and in Europe. Then there are tax breaks that need to happen and certain things. So you need to hire a certain amount of people from that country in order to let that country allow such a huge thing. So they knew, okay, we can only hire X amount of Americans and we have to hire X amount of UK. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. What was that mesh of cultures like at the beginning? Was the suspicion between the American actors and the English guys faking American accents, like those English guys over here taking our jobs? I think there's a few of them for certain had that kind of vibe for me i always felt american i just had a strange little american swagger so i never came up against it most of the yanks thought i was american anyway everybody really stuck with the accent even the people that had some dodgy accents were sticking to them for the most part but there were some that would really hold it and it wouldn't be until you know we'd be out drinking in a bar eight months down the road and We'd be like, all right, I'm going to drop my accent. And I'd start talking to somebody with my British accent. They'd be like, that's a terrible British accent. Why are you doing a weird British accent? So I couldn't win. 
<laughs> like Ross McCall when he's got a few in him, he likes to put on a fake Scottish accent. Come on, let's do it! <laughs> that's, that's just the greatest testament to your work and your consistency in the role. We know you've got your American accent down, Pat. Yeah. But you also had to speak convincing German for this role. Did you speak German at all before the ship? I did not, no. Me and some of the boys have actually laughed about this. I'm a Scotsman with a dodgy English accent playing an American paratrooper, speaking German, sort of with a tinge of an American accent still within that German. It was all done by parrot fashion. Every script came through was all in English. So I would learn the meaning of what I had to say. And then it was all translated for me and I would have to learn it. Well, you know, listen, I had wonderful translators. I could go to them and say, look, if I take a break here, is it the same as taking a break here in English? And they would say, yes. And I'd say, okay, so I know when I hit this word, it's really this moment. The night before a very big scene, I had this big chunk of German dialogue and I knew it off by heart and I'd been practicing. It was on, it was on, it was on. And then I got a call the night before we shot from the translator panicking, saying, it's wrong. It's wrong. What we've given you is wrong. It's this. That was a very panicky late night. <laughs> the gorgeous tonally perfect German, you essentially learn that all syllable by syllable. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, all of it was all syllable by syllable, yeah. It wasn't just the accent. You had to drop a ton of weight to get down to, what, about 130 pounds for Leave Got? Joe was 130, and I got down to 135. Now, listen, I was a skinny kid anyway, but I wasn't that skinny. I guess all of us, we were the fittest we'd ever been. Boot camp really just started getting us in shape. But again, you're talking early 2000s. A, a lot of that diet was Marlboro's and beer at the weekend, you know? So You joked that before Band of Brothers, the only running you did was to get a pack of heaters. <laughs> That's such a quote from a young mid-20s actor, isn't it? <laughs> I remember giving that quote in a magazine at the Chateau Marmont in LA. But there was an element of truth to that, for sure. Even to this day, I hate cardio. So getting told... Yeah, you got to run five miles a day. I was horrified. Everybody at boot camp had a monster to face. Some people were like, I don't know how I'm going to be able to go sleepless nights. I don't know how I'm going to be able just to wear this uniform. I don't know how I'm going to fight people. I don't know how I'm going to do push-ups and sit-ups. And all of that was fine for me. Running was my Achilles heel. And we'd been given a letter typed out from Dale Dye, Captain Dale Dye, dated in the 40s, explaining what we could bring and what we couldn't bring. And all we could bring was running shoes, sweatpants, a green towel. Couldn't be any color, we had to get a green towel. And the rest would be provided for us. And so I remember saying to my brother, I said, I don't know if I've got a decent pair of running kicks. You know, I've got Nikes that I wear down a pub. And he's like, ah, here, you know, take mine. We're the same size shoe. I said, all right, great. I stupidly didn't try them on until I got to boot camp. And he was half a size smaller than me. So I did boot camp with trainers that were like crushing my feet every day on top of doing these five clicks that everybody was like, nah, listen, after the first click, your legs go to jelly, but then you're all right. Never happened. For the entire boot camp, I was breathing out places I shouldn't be breathing. It's my worst nightmare. <laughs> but the rest of it I loved, and I've always said I would do boot camp again tomorrow. It was incredible. You and Dale Dye, the decorated Marine who acted as an advisor to the show and whipped you all into shape, you're actually one of the few actors who had the confidence to take the piss out of him. <laughs> who told you that <laughs> a younger Ross McCall in more confident days 
<laughs> I call him Dale now, but Captain, out of respect, I'll always salute him when I see him. But Captain was like my stepdad. We became really good pals. He was really good to me. And he was good to all the guys. All the guys are his sons. Whether or not they had a hard time with him or not, he loves his boys. And we all knew how to drill. We had drilled us beautifully. We could march. We were soldiers, man. We really did. We got there from a bunch of ragtail actors. We got in line and we knew how to soldier. One of my greatest compliments from Captain Ever was he took, I mean, it's a shame for the other lads, but he took like five of us to one side and said, I would go to war with each of you. I would trust it. And I remember just being like, really like, Wow, that's big. The nickname that Dale Dye had for you. He called me the Bolt. The Bolt keeps everything together. So he would call me Bolt. It came from when he was in Vietnam. His right-hand guy was his driver in Vietnam in the Jeeps. He said Bolt saved his life. And he said, personality-wise, I reminded him of him. He still calls me Bolt to this day. Let's talk some Lieb got. What a character. A first-generation American whose parents had immigrated to Michigan from Austro-Hungary. A number of actors in the Band of Brothers pantheon had the real living men to spend time with to build character. Or dossiers and diaries and just mountains of photographs. Liebgott had sadly passed in 1992. You didn't have that much to go on. I really didn't. <laughs> Even guys that weren't featured that heavily in the show had packs like a Christmas carol and I'm Tiny Tim. Everybody was getting these big, like, oh, great packs. And yeah, yeah, family members, phone numbers, pictures, scribblings in books, memoirs, all this. And I literally got a manila envelope with one picture. And it wasn't even like a brand new, it was this picture from the book. Like I was like, guys, you just Xerox this and blew it up and put it in an envelope. You could have just said, Ross, look at the book. It's in there. So I had zilch. But what I did have, I could rely on the other guys because the guys never talk about themselves. So a lot of the info that people would get would be from their brothers or their family members. And so they were very happy to talk about their guys. And so they would just tear into it. So I had this wonderful entryway. Because the veterans didn't want to talk about purely their own experiences, you're able to tap into their willingness to talk about anything but themselves to build a portrait of Liebgott. They all told me the same thing. Liebgott was, he was a good soldier. He was a good guy. They all liked having him around, but he was a scrappy little scoundrel. He had aggression in him. He had a real disdain towards the Germans. The Jewish side of his faith came into play. There's that remarkable scene in Crossroads where Winters hands over 11 German prisoners to be taken back to the battalion command post. Come on, crap boys. Joe. Yeah. Drop your ammo. What? Drop your ammo. You kidding me? What are you doing? Give me your weapon. Yeah. You have one round. Johnny, how many prisoners do we have? Got 11 right now, sir. Okay. You drop a prisoner, the rest will jump you. I want all prisoners back of battalion CP alive. Yes, sir. They knew if they unleashed him at any point, good and bad, when he goes up to take care of the Commandant on episode 10, that's factual. They sent him, they knew he'd be the guy that would go and make sure that happened. The other thing that's slightly confusing is whether Liebgott, who was by all accounts a complex character, was even Jewish in the first place. Some think he was a Catholic who was mistaken as a Jew by his comrades who looked at his name and just thought that it was Yiddish. There's a lot of that came to the forefront after the show. We started hearing from people that were connected to Joe. So that was unknown to us at the time. Yes, we 
categorically for as far as the show went, played him from what we knew from Dr. Ambrose and the guys. Everybody thought he was Jewish, presumed he was Jewish. That was something that I really wanted to bring to the show. And so it was very important to me. And actually, David was really helpful to me when we were at boot camp. David Schwimmer. We would buddy up together. And my questioning to him was about his faith. You know, I'm a Catholic boy, so I was intrigued to find out more about the Jewish faith. And he was brilliant. I said to him, look, can I ask you really personal, ridiculous, stupid questions? And he was like, far away. And he was great. And so I really wanted to bring that. I wore a star of David on my dog tags for the entire show. I wanted to represent the Jewish community in that way. So when the Catholic thing came out later, to be honest, it didn't really trouble me in any way. You know, it didn't shake me and go, oh my God, you know, we've done things wrong. The depth of your research made it, as a viewer, so authentic. And episode nine, Ross, is in this series incredibly popular. But the show was filmed chronologically largely. And Liebgott, for much of it, was an ensemble player. How much anticipation did you have ahead of this shoot for episode nine, knowing that you were poised to deliver the whole time the series' emotional gut punch? We shot episode one, two, three, five, four, nine, ten, six, seven, eight. And I knew that in episode eight, I had a lot. Episode nine, I had a lot. Episode 10, I had a lot. Then rewrites started coming in very early on. And there were one or two of us where they just started growing the role. Four and six were probably my quiet episodes. But the rest I had at least a couple of really intense scenes. So they were giving me beautiful moments. Episode three with Tipper. Episode five with a rifle reload and then getting shot in the neck and... So I was gearing up to this big thing that we knew was coming, but we were just sort of living in that excitement of what you were given to do in any particular episode. A few of us were lucky enough that we had real meat that kept us busy. There were a lot of guys that really didn't, and they had to sit by and patiently wait. As these rewrites are coming in, Ross, internally, are you like, I'm doing something right? I'm getting, do you have that sense? I'm getting more. I'm getting more. They like what they're seeing. I think we were doing episode five that Tom Hanks was directing. So we'd done one, two, three, five. So we're in episode five, and Tom had come over, and I'd noticed that I was getting some extra scenes in Tom's episode, which made me very happy. And I remember one of the writers, one of my best friends now to this day, Eric Bork, I met him for the first time during episode five. And he came over and he singled me out and he sort of took me to one side as we were walking to set. And he said, hey, I just want to let you know that back in Los Angeles, people have been watching the dailies. And dailies are every day something shot and we shot it all on film and it's all sent away and people screen it and, you know, before they do any of the post-production on it. And a few of your scenes have been really talked about. And one in particular was when Liebgott goes in after Tipper gets his legs blown off. And actually, they ended up using that image at the beginning of the show where Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks have their names. I knew that that was like a real pivotal scene for those guys. And I think it was one of the first billboards they put in Times Square as well, that same image. And so I was sort of getting a sniff that they were liking it. And so I ended up having a chat with Tony Toe. We were in between the scene. He said, how you doing? And I just said, I'm doing good. How's, you know, how am I doing? And he came and he sat down and he said, you know, he says, when we're all watching stuff, we're starting to see who pops. You pop. 
And then he stood up and he walked away. So I was very, very fortunate that they saw that and started writing him up a little more. Episode nine, the big theme is Easy Company's first contact with actual Germans coming face-to-face with German society. And the first half of the episode shows these encounters, but the second half of the episode flips that on the head. And I want to talk about it. It's also the part of the show where you step up and deliver so many of the emotional exclamation points. That scene, setting up the second half, Easy Company emerging from a forest. We see their shock on patrol. We don't know what the men are looking at, but they all, one after another, just drop their rifles in sheer horror, forcing the audience to ask what could be so terrifying a sight that they had to stop dead in their tracks. What was that like to shoot? The producers came to me before we started shooting the episode, gauging my interest in going to visit one of the camps in Europe. Now, historically and humanely, I wanted to go, and I declined in that moment because... I knew, well, history knew that Easy Company and the other companies that actually did find these atrocities didn't know what they were. They had no idea if it was Germans or Brits. Or, nobody knew. I just wanted that element of surprise to come across on camera. So when you see us in the show, seeing it for the first time, that's us seeing it for the first time. I just was astounded at what we saw. So a lot of that shock and awe and horror was real. Some guys really broke down at it. Some guys soldiered through it. I think everybody was just like, wow. I mean, we, uh, we're not making a movie at this point. It was breathtakingly heartbreaking. The grim sky, the guard towers, the banks of barbed wire, the thick mud, the ash. I mean, as a viewer, you engage with that in horror. And it's hard to believe this was actually a set built from scratch in Hatfield, Hertfordshire, because the detail of the work was incredible how accurate it was. They brought in real elements from various museums. And Banner Brothers from the top down was just A++. We had the best set designers in the world of the time, the best prop masters, makeup, hair, costumes, directors. Everybody was just the pinnacle of the industry. It's a hard question to ask, but I watched this, and I've got to say, the concentration camp prisoners, the extras, are so real, skeletal, physically. You know, their teeth, the skulls, the level of emaciation. How was it achieved? Well, that's in three parts, and that goes back to having the best of the best. Part of the casting process were, they did go out and cast folks who were slightly emaciated. I know they had doctors that were dealing with a lot of the meetings of these people because there were some people with eating disorders, some people that were just emaciated through illness, some people were emaciated just through their own natural lives. They went and they spoke to everybody and everybody made sure everybody was healthy and everybody was good and everybody knew what we were doing and they were absolutely amazingly willing to tell this story in the most realistic way. On top of that, you also have the best makeup artists in the world that go in and help with the teeth and help shadow in on the ribs and the collarbones. And the third element of that is animatronics. I don't know if you remember the old man who's getting carried out. Absolutely, by his son. That's right. And so that's an animatronic. So there is somebody there with wires and that's a body double and, you know, moving the legs and moving the arms. And a lot of the corpses that you saw around were 
made in the prop house and it was just devastating. It was so realistic. I won't get too graphic with it, but it wasn't just a dummy that they dressed up. The plastic bodies they used for corpses were full, every body part. It wasn't just like a rubber mannequin. Just an atrocious sight. And the climax of the scene is your translation as Winters desperately tries to fathom what on earth could have happened here. Ross, the way you deliver those lines in German. Was ist das hier? Das, 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 das hier? Das, das ist ein Arbeitslager für, 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 für Unerwünschte, wirklich. He says it's a work camp for Unerwünschte. Uh, I'm not sure what the word means, sir. Uh, Unwanted, disliked, maybe. Criminals? I don't think criminals, sir. Uh, Fabrecia. Fabrecia? Nein, nein. No. Ärzte, Musiker, Beamte, Bauern, Doctors, Musician, Schreiber, Schneider, Intellektuelle. Clerks, farmers, intellectuals, I mean, normal people. Juden. 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 They're Jews. Juden. That killed me. And I thought that actor was wonderful. I mean, what a great scene partner. And he crushed me when he said it. And I just thought to be asked to then go back on that. For your own good, so you can get proper medical attention, without which you'll perish. And say, actually, guys, no, you need to go back in. I can't let you out. You got to go back in. Achtung, bitte! Achtung, bitte! Sie müssen wieder ins Lager so. Sie müssen wieder ins Lager so. Es ist nur für eine kurze Zeit. Knowing what that translated as just tore me apart. You know, it was never written that Liebgart broke down. It was always written as, oh, he delivered the news and got on with business. And I just couldn't allow that to slip. I needed the human element to come out of this kid. He sits down and puts his hands through his hair and he breaks down. That was like a last shot of the day, quick, you know, hey, you know what? Yeah, 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 do that again. Listen, you know what I mean? So a tough emotional day. And also just a chaotic day in the sense of filmmaking. You're there with now 200 people. I mean, you know, you're doing this little Shakespearean moment of standing on a stage and delivering to... 200 people, your German lines that you've memorised. James Maddio, who played Piconti, said, the set itself was truly difficult to spend time on. The magnitude of those events, the importance of this specific episode. This was not just a day shoot. You guys were on this set for how long? Six, seven days? I would probably guess, yeah. Yeah, between that and 10 days. The whole episode was about a month. Watching Winters and Picante pull open a cattle car, find it packed with dozens of emaciated, broken corpses, to shoot scenes like that over and over and over. What was the atmosphere like on set? Was it different to every other shoot? Yes. Yes, there was so much respect. I think that's the best way of putting it. From everybody. From the AD to the director to the DPs to the camera guys to the crew. Everybody just respect now we also had a job to do so you're doing that job within those guidelines of just we know what we have to do here and it's just respect what does this episode ross what does it mean to you 
it means everything. It's one of the most talked about episodes of television history. I have teachers and scholars and professors write to me saying, I show this episode in my class. I have kids write to me saying, I didn't know about this. I didn't know about this. I love the show, but this episode in particular. So to be involved and to be able to tell that story in a way that has affected people in the way it has, I'm hugely honored. Whether that's me being a vessel as an actor or as a human being. However that comes along, that I got to be able to get some of that education out to this generation, I'm completely floored by, grateful for. And to begin with, when the show first came out, it was actually guys showing their grandpas the show. And then the grandpas then started talking about their own experience, which they'd never done before. So it was bringing families closer together. And then I was getting military personnel come up to me all over the world. I was on set once doing a show in Albuquerque and I was shooting down there for two years. A character gets written into the second season and I'm waiting to meet that actor. And I'm shooting a scene. I see this guy loitering around him and I give him a nod and he nods back and I know it's the actor coming in. And I go over and I say, hey buddy, I'm Ross, nice to meet you. And he was just, I said, you okay? And he goes, he said, I'm a veteran. He said, I've been fighting in Afghanistan for years. I'm now an actor. He's a wonderful actor. He does tons of stuff now. And he said, I've been watching you and your guys on a TV screen this big for my last three tours in a tent. And I was like, boy, that just shows you. And it's not in awe of me, it's in awe of the show. Band of Brothers has an impact of the greatest storytelling of the greatest generation. We're all in awe of Liebkop, particularly after this episode. And you once said, and I love this, Ross, I had grown with Joe Liebkop. He had become part of me. How did the experience change you as a person of playing Liebkop episode nine? Even you saying that makes me want to cry. And I mean that genuinely. He's a big part of my life, that kid. I'm older than him now, you know? <laughs> Had it changed my life in so many ways. Professionally, it opened so many doors. It allowed me to move to a country I'd always wanted to go to. It allowed me to get in the room with people I've admired and idolized for years in my own industry. Any set I go on, directors, producers, writers will always be, ah, oh, talk about band, talk about band, talk about band. So professionally, it's one thing. Personally, I grew up with Leap Guy. And so every year his birthday comes around, I like to smile about it. And I still have my fake dog tags, but I still got my Leap Got tags. I've still got my jump jacket. And it's not because of the show I have that, it's because it's a connection to him. What exactly does that connection mean to you? I lived in his boots for a year, longer. Realistically, 20 years later, we're still talking about it. But for a year, I was 100% Corporal Joseph Liebgott. And to be able to protect that legacy. I didn't want to do it as an actor. I didn't want to do it as, this has got to be better. And this is, I wanted to protect him. I wanted to protect Easy Company. To me, it's a legacy that needs to be held high and respected. Ross McCall, thank you for honouring the memory of Joe Liebgott and sharing your journey with us. It's been magnificent. It's my pleasure. It's my honour. I'm very lucky that I get to keep that for the rest of my life. We wanted to get some additional insight into those devastating final scenes 
which Ross just spoke about. So who better to speak to than the gentleman who wrote Why We Fight, a human being you might remember from this very podcast. He joined us to talk episode two, Day of Days, which he also wrote. It's an honour to welcome back the one and only Mr. John Orloff. Why, thank you. John, we remember talking to you back in episode two, your story of how you joined Band of Brothers as a relatively raw screenwriter to write about the liberation of a concentration camp in an episode which is really, for me, the emotional core of the whole series, a massive, sprawling prestige series. How did you approach that task mentally? Oh, I totally, absolutely, completely froze. I turned in episode two and I gave it to Tom and he read it, and then he called me in for a notes meeting, and he says, I have one change for you, I have one change. In the beginning, you have them singing for a little bit. Take out the singing. I'm like, okay, what's next? He said, that's it. You wanna write another one? And I go, uh, okay. How about the concentration camp episode? And I go, uh, 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 okay. You know, you just had me do the D-Day episode two years after Saving Private Ryan, and now you want me to do the Schindler's List episode five years after Schindler's List. No pressure, but okay. All right, great. I went home and totally panicked, totally froze, because, yeah, I mean, it was Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg. It was the responsibility that I spoke about in episode two about Dick Winters and getting it right for those men. Now I had to get it right for not just those men, but the Holocaust, I've just gone from 60 to 100 in, oh my God, how am I going to do this? Stephen Ambrose's book, Band of Brothers, was the urtex, the heart of the Band of Brothers production. But while he goes into detail on almost every step of Easy Company's journey, on the liberation of the Corfering concentration camp, there's just a paragraph for you to go on. Exactly. And I quickly found out why. So you would call one of the men and you would say, okay, so I'm writing this episode when you go into Germany and you're by Dachau and you go to Landsberg. And so tell me about the concentration camp. And there'd be this long silence. Oh, I can't talk about that. I won't talk about that. So here were men who had I'd now known for a year, maybe longer, who had told me their worst, most terrible stories, the most awful experiences in their life. I mean, I can still remember Malarkey crying in front of me as he's telling me about somebody dying right next to him and what it meant to him. And you would ask them, tell me about, oh, I can't talk about that. I won't talk about that. To a man. These men could talk about some of the most diabolical human experiences that could be imagined. But this, this even for them was one step beyond. Yeah. And the exception was, of course, Dick Winters. I called him up and we talked about it for many, many hours, many conversations. And he wanted me to get it right, just like he wanted me to get episode two right. He wanted me to get this right because it's the late 90s and Holocaust denialism was just starting to sort of become a thing. And Winters was very deeply offended by that personally. And the reason was, and I can still hear his voice as well, saying to me, I was there. I was there. I saw it. It happened. You know, he was furious by these Holocaust deniers, just furious. 
why do you think that was that none of the men could talk about it but dick winters could i mean he was a religious man what was it about him that empowered him to see the importance of the task at hand he is a leader and that's part of being a leader is seeing a larger context than other men having a broader vision and so maybe he saw the greater good in bringing these memories up and sharing them with me, whatever the psychological or difficulty he might have in that retelling of the story. Because obviously they saw really horrible things. And in fact, there was a longer cut of this episode with about five more minutes in it. And it was all concentration camp stuff where they saw even more horrible things. And HBO in the end, I think it was like one of the few edits that HBO asked for. Once we turned in an episode, he was kind of done because Tom had done it and Tom loved it. Then it was done. This was one of the very few times where they said, you know, we love this episode, but it's just one step too heavy. And I was very disappointed at the time that they had done that. But now I think it's perfect. And I think they were right. There is a point where you turn off your audience. What else did you turn to as a writer? What text did you use? What books did you use? What did you use to piece this episode together? This one was a little more imagination than episode two. In some ways, it was the polar opposite of episode two. Their experience was what it was. So then it was about revealing the experience. And so I talked more to Dick about that. And he told me the story of him, Dick Winters, going into a German house, an upper middle class house, going in to billet there for himself. And he walked in and he saw this picture of a Nazi soldier officer. He thought a colonel. This is Winters. Picked it up and threw it on the floor. And as he did that, he felt these eyes on him and he turned around and there was this German widow. And Winters had this moment of feeling like he had done something horrible. He had barged into this woman's house and he had this moment of reflection and humanity and complex reaction. And I was like, well, that's really interesting. And I'm thinking that maybe we want to make Nixon a big character. And I'm thinking he's having his own issues right at this point in the war and his personal life. And what do you think if I took that story, Dick, and gave it to Nixon and have that be kind of the spine of the story is Nixon's complex reactions to this part of the war and why is he there and all of these feelings. And Dick was thrilled with that idea. And so I don't know a ton about what Nixon was really, I mean, I knew his marriage had fallen apart at that point. I knew he was drinking too much at that point. But that first half of the episode is, is pretty much just me trying to set up a world where the guys are getting more comfortable. They see in the Germans themselves, guy after guy said that England was not the most similar place to America that they thought it would be. France was even less so, you know, in you know Midwestern American terms. But when they got to Germany, they thought the Germans were the most like them. Their society seemed on the surface to be so much like America's very middle class in a way that England and France weren't. And yet they did this thing. 
So I wanted to capture that idea through Nixon. And the facts were hazy. The men of Easy Company you interviewed actually believe they were liberators and talk about it yeah. as if they were. But it turns out they were there a day or so later after the camp had been liberated. Right. And I didn't know that when I wrote the episode because so few of them would talk to me about it at all. And really just Dick did. I didn't have any other sources. And Dick remembered it, that they were there on the first day. And I would imagine that's because you go into a concentration camp and there were still people there. That was definitely true. There were still people when Dick and the 101st were there. So they saw the victims and they saw the bodies. They saw everything we show them seeing. They just didn't see it before anybody else, it turns out. But I would argue that the fact that it was so awful and so undescribable and so horrible that I forgive these guys if they remember it, that they were there a day earlier than they were there. That they can remember it at all is amazing. Director David Frankel handles the scenes with an incredible, sober and manipulative tone, which is incredible because I believe he actually lost family members in such camps during the war. I think that's why he asked to direct this episode, in fact. It, Frankel's had died, and I mean, people that were really intimately close, not just cousins of cousins. He did an amazing job. The beginning, that first shot is just poetic, that five-minute shot or whatever it is, and the way he ends it with the violin case closing, it's just a beautiful piece of direction all the way around. One of the themes of the episode it's bad behaviour. Spears stealing pretty much anything he can get his hands on. Nixon breaking and entering French soldiers, executing German soldiers. And then the concentration camp. And the American soldiers had spent the last leg of the war seemingly becoming increasingly disillusioned. There's this idea in the first half of the episode that any of these guys could have just as easily been a German soldier if they'd been born differently. And the script intentionally scrambles the divide between good and evil. And then you get to Landsberg and all of a sudden that kind of hypothetical moral agnosticism just vanishes. Is that how you set the script up? Yeah, I mean, that was the purpose of the episode. I mean, you just nailed it exactly because war does make everybody do horrible things. And it is a horrible, horrible thing to make our boys do these things and go to these places. And they did it at tremendous personal sacrifice. And that personal sacrifice was starting to add up into bad behavior and disillusionment. Suddenly, they see why they're there, why they fight. This episode is about many things. It's about culture. It's about Beethoven. But it's also about evil and bad behavior and degrees of those things. There are degrees of bad behavior. And as we go, we see more and more bad behavior. The first thing is with the chickens. Hey, Lonnie, why don't you leave her alone? Frank, why don't you just leave me alone, okay? You don't like chocolate? Forget it, I don't like chocolate either. How about this? Cigarettes. Camel? Yeah, you like that, huh? Oh, Luz. Frank, please, why don't you go make your omelet? Why well, you ain't getting none of my eggs, you blockhead? But they don't really succeed. Then there's Spears stealing the stuff. You got a box all this stuff will fit into? Yes, sir, I think so. Same destination? Yeah. Yes, sir, I'll make sure it goes out first thing in the morning. Thank you, Brian. 
Well, your folks are sure gonna have quite a collection by the time you get home, sir. Find his keepers. There was actually another scene of them kicking people out of their houses. This guy says he's a Nazi. Now, why is he in all of Germany? I've never met one Nazi. You're only going to be here one night. You've got four minutes. You know, just family members. The Americans are saying, well, we're going to fucking sleep here tonight. You're out. And then Nixon breaking in to try to get alcohol and then trying to break into that other woman's house. And so it was about moral grays. And in that moment at the concentration camp, the Menavisi company have to decide which side of the divide they're on. And in that second, they jump from wherever they were, and they're all in different places. They jump right back to the viewer's side. It all became about humanity. And part of the argument that the first half is making is a little bit of a sucker punch because it's saying you can have that judgment, but then you have to understand that 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 is what it takes to end something like this. These guys had to do everything they could in order to destroy this terrible, terrible evil. And once they were there and saw it, everything becomes immaterial other than this event. The legacy of episode nine is remarkable. And you've talked about how when you choose to watch Schindler's List, you intentionally know what you're about to expose yourself to in terms of the subject matter. But when you watch Band of Brothers episode nine, the audience have no idea that they're going to learn about the Holocaust when they tune in as such. I imagine a lot of people have learned about the Holocaust for the first time through this episode. Exactly. I've been told by people at the Holocaust Museum, the national one in D.C., when they randomly say, how did you first hear about the Holocaust, that Band of Brothers is the number one answer that most people now learn about the Holocaust through band. And what's interesting and I think I'm very proud of is when you watch Schindler's List, you know you're going to be watching something about the Holocaust. When you turn on Band of Brothers, you're watching wonderful stories of these incredible heroes doing these amazing, bigger-than-life, true things. And that's what drew you in. And then all of a sudden, and you don't know what's going to happen in the episode. I mean, that's one of the things I love about the episode. That first half hour, 35 minutes, whatever it is, you have no idea what they're about to find. And so as an audience member, you share their shock because you weren't expecting it any more than they were expecting it. So you have a similar experience to our characters because you've been lulled into this comfort zone of Germany's just lovely and everybody's going fine and everybody's going to live. Hopefully nothing bad happens to these guys because I really went, whoa, what just happened? Where are they? And suddenly you're taken down a very intense emotional road that really culminates in Ross McCall's performance of Liebgott in the concentration camp scene, understanding exactly what has happened and what he's just witnessed and the enormity of it that goes through Ross McCall's face as an actor in that sequence is really profound and that's where it all comes together and is really one of the highlights of the show in my humble opinion that national holocaust museum anecdote that you just told me I and mean, how do you feel when you hear that because that is some incredible legacy 
it makes me really, really proud. I think if I ever do anything in my life, it will never compare to episode nine of Band of Brothers and will not have a larger impact on real people than Band of Brothers. I mean, that's what's so amazing about Band is that it really has an impact on people and can change their lives. I'm working on a project right now that has me living in Windsor, England, and I was at my pub that's across the street. Can you name check your pub, John Olaf, please? Yes, of course I can. It's the Two Brewers, owned by Robert Gillespie, and it's maybe the greatest pub in England. Robert Gillespie from Primal Scream. No, Robert Gillespie, the owner of the two brewers. <laughs> okay. And so, uh, you know, and you're in a pub and people talk, you know, I have an American accent. Why are you in London or why are you in Windsor? Oh, I'm making a show. Oh, what have you done? Band of Brothers. Oh, my God, you made. And this guy was a veteran from Iraq and from Afghanistan, a Brit. And he told me almost in tears. This is two days ago, probably 30. He was there with his wife and their newborn eight-week-old baby, so still a younger guy. And he starts almost crying, telling me how Band of Brothers got him through his PTSD. And after doing two tours in Iraq and one in Afghanistan. I mean, this is two days ago. Normal TV shows don't do that. John, one of my favorite parts of the Band of Brothers book is when Stephen Ambrose notes this awful encounter's impact on the real Richard Winters, who wrote in his diary that the memory of starved days men who stooped their eyes and heads when we looked at them in the same manner that a beaten, mistreated dog would cringe leaves feelings that cannot be described and will never be forgotten. The impact of seeing those people behind that fence left me saying, now I know why I am here. When you originally read that, John, was the whole of the episode actually in that diary entry? Yes, exactly. You know, all roads lead to winters in Band of Brothers. They really do, either directly or indirectly, because he was the leader and he took these men on this journey and it was all because of Dick. And he remained their leader. He was their protector in their older years. And in this case telling the story of Easy Company was something that was really important to him. And telling this part of the story of Easy Company is really important. Now I know why I am here. All the sacrifice we've seen for the last eight hours of television, but in their life, 18, 19, 20 months, has a reason. All that death, all that suffering, Hall dying in episode two, all the other deaths, they had purpose. And once I understood that's what Dick was talking about, that we had to write the episode about that. John, Band of Brothers has become a cultural phenomenon. It is so much bigger now, even than it was when it came out. How do you understand that trajectory? Wow, I don't. Wow, I really don't. I mean, sort of what I was just talking about, how it continues to affect people. And I don't think that was our intention. I mean, it wasn't the short term, but nobody thought. I mean, we weren't even sure people were going to like it when it came out. There were real concerns among some of us 
myself included, that we were too scatterbrained. This episode was about that. This episode was about that. All the writers thought having the interviews in the beginning of the show and the end of the show were terrible idea. We thought it was a terrible idea that it would only make the stuff that we wrote look like reenactors. Tom Hanks said, no, 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 we're having those interviews, man. We are having those interviews. And guess who was right? And guess who was wrong? <laughs> I'd be on the wrong part. Tom was 100% right. So we didn't even think that would work. So the fact that 20 years later, I can sit at a pub and somebody can tell me how it got him through PTSD just you know a year or two ago is really a surprise. It's really a surprise. It was not expected. John Olof, thank you for your work preserving the legacy of Easy Company. And thank you for sharing your story of it with us today. It's been my great pleasure. What a privilege to talk to two of the gents who helped create what remains some 20 years later one of the most emotionally powerful episodes of television I've ever seen. And coming up next time, we hear from the man who played the centrifugal force of Band of Brothers. Major Winters. Captain Sobel. We salute the rank, not the man. That's right. The one and only Damien Lewis. He talks about how a Shakespearean trained private school educated, well-heeled Englishman was cast to play one of America's greatest war heroes. I think there was something, I mean, to be frank, probably just a bit stiff about me. I was probably a bit old-fashioned and a bit stiff and a bit uncool. <laughs> just, I was the least cool person. They auditioned, basically, and said, right, let's make him... The Dutch Mennonite, conservative, <laughs> non-drinking, non-smoking guy from the 1930s. Make sure to subscribe to HBO's official Band of Brothers podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate, review, share, spread the word. And a last reminder, as if you needed one, you can watch the magnificent Why We Fight and every episode of Band of Brothers on HBO Max right now. Until next time. Hooray! Hooray!